Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode four, Functionalized. First up, I want to say thanks to everybody who sent in pull requests and otherwise interacted with me this week. I was incredibly encouraged by some of the emails I got, as well as incredibly excited by some of the open source contributions I got back. Thanks especially to GitHub users KStep, Konstantin Stepanov, Dashed, Alberto Leal, and CTJ. HOA, Camille Choa, for fixing some links in the show notes, and to ZazDXSCF, Emmanuel Chirai, for pointing out some problems in the code samples from last week. Also, thanks to David Kreicho, yep, that's my dad, for asking me some good questions about last week's episode content and about the show notes, which have led to some improvements I'll be pushing up to the example code sometime later this week. Second, Progress continues very nicely on the IDEs I mentioned last week. In particular, I have been extremely excited to see the IntelliJ IDEA folks who have made a ton of progress since I recorded last. And while you have to build the plugin they're working on yourself still, you can build the plugin. And it already supports basic syntax highlighting and is coming along nicely with being able to jump to function definitions and things like that. Sometime in the next month or so, I would guess, we'll have a functioning base-level IntelliJ IDEA plugin for Rust, and that's going to be fantastic. Third, a few more learning tools you might find handy on your journey to learn Rust. First, Exorcism.io has some great Rust exercises, and a hat tip to Lechendioner, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, as I hope I pronounced some of the earlier names correctly. My apologies if I got any of those wrong. Lechendioner has been interacting with me on GitHub, Twitter, and app.net, and got his first pull request accepted to the Rust repository for a typo fix this week. Huzzah! Next, Camille Choa's GitHub repository, Rust Learning, may be useful to you. And if you speak German, there are an awful lot of Rust resources on Rustplatz. That's R-U-S-T-P-L-A-T-Z dot D-E. Me, I can't read a word of German. But it looks like there's some solid stuff there. Again, hat tip to Lechendianer. Now, time for some functions. Last week, I said we were going to talk about functions, methods, closures, and the basics of the stack and the heap this week. That, as it turns out, is a bit more than I'm actually going to be able to handle in a single episode. To talk about functions in Rust, we're going to have to spend a little time talking about types in Rust as well. And that means we're not going to get to the stack and the heap this week. In fact, there's going to be a fair bit with closures and functions and all of that that we only scratch the surface of this week and come back to in more detail next week. Today, we're going to start by getting our feet under us a bit with what we actually mean when we talk about functions, both in programming languages in general and in Rust specifically. Once we have that, we'll jump into those basics of how Rust handles normal functions, struct methods, and closures. We'll conclude by showing how some of those conceptual issues, types, and what we mean when we talk about functions in Rust, come into play at a practical level by looking at how you can pass around functions as arguments, precisely because functions are just another type in Rust. Then, next week we'll pick up and carry on with the idea of returning functions, and we'll see how that in turn leads us further into the type system, as well as into the promised discussion of the stack and the heap. 
functions are the building blocks of sane programming. Sane, I say, because, well, anyone who's been around long enough in the programming world has seen nightmare code, quote-unquote functions, which are thousands or even tens of thousands of lines long, and which do dozens and sometimes hundreds of different things. To be sure, that's not how functions should work, but it is certainly how too many functions out in the wild do work. How functions work and what kind of thing functions are in the language make a big difference in how your language feels and what kinds of things are normal in it and just how sane your code can be. A few questions we might ask. Are functions first-class members of the language? That is, are they at the same level in the language as any other object? Integers, strings, structs, or classes, and the objects you build out of them, etc.? How hard, or easy, is it to use functions together, to take the results from one function and drop them into another, or to use a function within another function? Are there anonymous functions, or do all functions have to have names? Are there closures which can interact with the environment around them and potentially even carry that environment with them? Are there methods? that is, functions which belong to particular other objects in the language, or do all functions only stand alone? Are there functions which do stand alone, or do all functions have to be methods which belong to some other object? Can you define functions inside other functions? Do functions have types? And if so, can you use those types the way you can use other types in the language? How your language answers these questions ultimately determines what kind of a language you have. And in fact, the answers to these questions are some of the most determinative when it comes to the kind of programming language you have, and therefore the kinds of programs you're likely to write in that programming language. A few examples. If you look at old-fashioned Fortran, even up through the Fortran 90 and Fortran 95, which I started on in my programming journey, it really has subroutines. They're not functions in the mathematical sense by any means, like we might talk about in a much higher level language. They're a convenient way to break the module down into smaller chunks of code and even into reusable code, but They're not particularly sophisticated constructs. You cannot, for example, pass one function to another as an argument at all, at least to my knowledge. That said, if you're a Fortran expert listening to this and you know about the ability to pass functions around as arguments in Fortran, let me know. I would love to hear about it. I do maintain a sort of loose academic interest in Fortran just because. Call it nostalgia. Looking at another couple of languages, C, C++, and Java, for all that these languages have many differences in the way that they approach functions, they answer many of these questions the same way. In fact, the main way that C++ and Java differ from C is in that they have methods. Now, that's not the only way, and of course, they differ from each other in certain important ways as well. However, none of these languages really treat functions the same way they treat, say, integers or strings. If you want to pass a function to a function as an argument in C, you can do that, but it involves some pretty hairy syntax, and you certainly cannot specify the type as cleanly or as distinctly as you can with an integer or a string array or something like that. By contrast, Python and Ruby have functions that can be assigned and managed just like any other type in the language. In Python, you can define a function, and then you can give it another name, and you can call it with either of those names if you want. 
Moreover, functions are objects. You can attach methods to them. In general, anything you can do with any other type in Python, you can do with a method or a regular function or a lambda. Functions are just one more type in Python. The same is basically true of JavaScript. The same is basically true of Ruby. The same is true of a lot of modern languages, in fact. Notably, however, Python doesn't really expose those types in any way that you can use. Unlike, say, Haskell or a language descended from ML, like OCaml or F-sharp or, of interest to us, Rust. These languages give strong static types to everything in the language, and that includes functions. Functions have types which you can use as constraints in Rust, and this is extremely powerful. Indeed, as I noted in the first episode of the show, one of the themes of Rust is strong static typing. Nearly everything in the language has a type, and that type is known at compile time. And yes, that does include functions. In fact, the basic components of the type of a given function are right there in the definition of a given function. There are its argument types and its return types. And once you know those things, you can specify the type of a function. We will talk in much more detail about types in the future because they're such an important part of Rust and because those types can be further constrained, especially function types, in ways that are really important. We'll get into that even further when we talk about traits. Rust has two major categories of functions, regular functions and closures. But what about methods, you might be asking? Well, methods are really just a special case of normal functions. The only significant difference is that when you call a method, it's bound to either the namespace of the struct or enum that owns it, or the instance which owns it. And in the latter case, you define it in terms that include a reference to that instance. However, those functions, apart from those two details, behave just like all other functions do. So we really only care about functions and closures, because methods are just a certain kind of function. Regular functions take arguments of any type that you can specify and return values of any type that you can specify. Meaning, of course, that since you can specify the type of a function in Rust, functions, including methods, can take functions as arguments and return functions as values. Now, that last bit must be qualified. How you go about returning a function from another function in Rust is a little bit complicated, and we'll get into that in much more detail next week. So what about closures? Well, there's one big difference with closures from regular functions. Closures can capture their surrounding environment. Because of this, they use slightly different syntax. This serves as a visual reminder as you're typing. This thing behaves a little bit differently. What I mean when I say that closures capture their environment is that let's say that I have a function that returns another function. And let's say that I have some data that I set up when I call this containing function that I need to be able to keep track of when I call the function it returns. In other words, I have a factory, and I want to set some basic parameters on how the function returned from it behaves every time. 
Well, I could try to use concepts like a single turn or things like that to constrain it, but it's much easier simply to use a closure because let's say I have a value X in that containing function and I return a closure from that containing function. Well, that closure can hold on to X and do whatever it needs to. And if X is mutable, it can even change the value of X. Now, the syntax for doing this involves some particular memory allocation tricks. Again, we'll get into that more next week. For now, suffice it to say that as well as the utility of being able to define a simple anonymous function in line, which you can do with closure syntax, you can also hold on to the environment in which that closure was created. And this allows for considerable flexibility. It also means that where it's convenient to define an inline closure and then accept an argument from a function you're passing that closure to as a callback, you can continue interacting with the surrounding environment normally because it's all within the same scope in which that closure is defined. I will add a couple links to the show notes to talk about closures in more detail because closures can be difficult to get your head around. When I first started dealing with closures in JavaScript five years ago, my brain hurt for a month. The idea of anonymous functions is difficult on its own. The idea of anonymous functions being passed as arguments to other functions is difficult on its own. And the idea that those can then maintain a relationship to the context in which they were created becomes yet more complicated. Again, I'll put some reading in the show notes. For now, suffice it to say that closures are really another special case of functions, and that special casing gets you unique and powerful behavior in the relationship to the environment. When I say they are just a special case of that same underlying functionality, though, I mean it. Both closures and normal functions, including methods, simply implement the function trait. This is one of those ways that types can be constrained and defined. And again, we'll talk more about traits in the future. For now, suffice it to say that traits make up the basic way of defining conformity to a given interface in Rust, similar to mix-ins, protocols, and interfaces in other languages. Now, as I suggested a moment ago, closures can be passed as arguments to functions, but so can normal functions. And while closures are particularly useful because they can be defined where the function call happens and because they can bring their environment with them, you can do the same thing with standalone functions. If you don't need to bring your environment with you or if you don't have a particular need to define it in line or if defining it in line would make things less clear, you can just pass a function wherever you would pass a closure. All you have to do to define a function which takes a function as an argument is supply the type of that function as a constraining trait. Traits again. We'll be getting to traits sooner rather than later because as you can see, they're an important part of the language. Having done that, you can pass in any function that conforms to that type. If you define the trait bound as saying, This function accepts another function which takes an integer and returns a string. Any function which matches that type can be used. This is extremely powerful on two fronts. One, it allows you to define that kind of common functionality as you could in a language like Python or Ruby, which also have function arguments. But two, it allows you to specify at compile time, these are the kinds of functions on which this other function will operate. And that means that you can know whether, for example, a given callback will work. To see how this works in a bit more detail, and perhaps a bit more clearly, take a look at the code samples in the show notes at newruststation.com slash show underscore notes. Next week, we'll follow up on this conversation. 
while today we talked about taking functions as arguments and we talked about the kinds of things that functions and closures are, next week we'll talk about returning functions from other functions and, as part and parcel of that, get into the stack and the heap. Along with that, we might dive a little bit into functional programming. Although, as we've seen this week, sometimes it takes longer to cover things than I initially anticipate. In addition to finding the show notes at neurostation.com, you can also follow the show on Twitter or app.net at neurostation, or you can follow me on either of those at Chris Kreitschow. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes to help others find it. And if you really like the show, I'd welcome your financial support. You can set up a recurring donation at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can send a one-off donation my way at dwalla.com, that's D-W-O-L-L-A dot com, slash hub slash Chris Kreicho. and links to all of these will be in the show notes, of course. Last but not least, I'd love to hear from you on social media, in the thread for the show on the Rust user forums at users.rustlang.org, or via email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding.